Hi everyone and welcome to Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from firmsconsulting.com that goes out every Monday morning where we distill the insights from all the noise for our Insider and Slides members. However, we make this available to the broader community so everyone can benefit. Many of you have asked us for copies of previous weeks of insights. So in response to that, we've put out Strategy Insights, which is an edited compilation of this podcast, and it's available only on Amazon.com. So if you want a copy, go in and search for Strategy Insights. As always, we also put out a newsletter on this topic. So all of the podcast insights got as a newsletter. If you want to get access to that newsletter for free, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo and put in your email address. You'll be immediately put into the email list to get the newsletter. And finally, if you want to listen to the audio version of the newsletter, which is this podcast, go to any podcast app and type in strategy skills. That's our iTunes channel on which Monday morning appears. As always, as you listen to these insights, think about what you are going to do with it. How would a leader act with this knowledge? How will you make a difference? How will you change the world? How will you use this moment to change the trajectory of your life? We're going to start with some interesting themes we're noticing. The first one is what I'll call zones of discontent. And it's touched off by one of my favorite cooks in the world, if not my favorite cook in the world. I've been to Thailand many times. And one person that I've visited the most is Jay Fai, who has recently been nominated to become one of Asia's 50 best restaurants, which is quite an achievement when you consider she does not run a restaurant. Jay Fai is famous for running a street food stall in Thailand. And because I like Thai food, I think she's the best chef in the world. But what's the big insight here? Why am I telling you about Jay Fai? It's not just about food. Jay Fai was famous because Netflix did a documentary on her and within Thailand she was famous. But she has become very famous because a group of culinary stars has chosen her to win an award. Otherwise, she would not be famous. She was elevated by an elite group of people. Now the question becomes, does her nomination, does her elevation mean she was nominated for the quality of her food or because this group making the nomination was responding to some macroeconomic trend whereby they maybe were trying to be more inclusive. They were trying to be more different. Maybe the rankings they were putting out were failing to resonate with the audience. What if she's not the best? What if she was elected into this prestigious award because it helped the nominating committee achieve one of their business goals? What if she's the third best cook? What if she's the 15th best cook? What is the mechanism that allowed her to be nominated, gain the awards and win this coveted title? That's the insight. But it goes further. It gets much deeper. A group of elite judges in the food world have decided that everyone else needs to know about JFI. If we extrapolate that trend, there's a common theme where elites decide what consumers want, even if consumers don't want it. It's a common theme across everything. I mean, think of the movie going industry, right? A group of powerful executives who have access to distribution networks, money, funding, the financial and social glue that makes a movie a blockbuster will decide what is a blockbuster. Now, there are great times when this group of elite decision makers pick things that the world wants. 
They make us watch things that make the world a better place. And therefore, we never notice that there's a group of a few people making this decision. What about times when the elites do things we don't want? Now, when I was a strategy partner traveling around the world, working with major state-owned enterprises, I saw this firsthand with telecoms companies that were state-owned and had a monopoly. A group of powerful executives, the elites of that country, would make decisions on what products, services the general population needed to have. And almost always the general population wasn't happy, but the general population could not respond because they had no recourse for responding. They had to make do with it, and they were not happy about it. The Oscars, a group of elite tastemakers, choose which movies should be celebrated as the best movies in the world, even if nobody likes it. The same with the Grammys. When the people decide what is the best in the world, we call it a People's Choice Award. Think about it this way. You, we can vote for who is going to be our president, but we can't vote for what's going to be the best movie in the world. That award is called the People's Choice Award, and it does not get as much attention as the Oscars. It's almost as if, as consumers, we need to be unionized. And a few select representatives with outsized powers get to select what we need to read, write, eat, feel, and hear. We can vote for a president, but somehow we can't vote for other things. Now, why does this matter? When I was a strategy partner, I used to run this workshop with CEOs and boards. I'd call it zones of discontent. And I'd actually build the entire strategy around that. We'd have a workshop whereby we'd send out market survey companies to look at markets we wanted to enter to see what were the products being offered by competitors and what did consumers want. Wherever we saw there were large zones of discontent whereby the elites were offering things consumers did not want, and assuming the market was large enough and could be profitable enough, we would enter that market. At least, not always enter it, but it would be a strong contender to enter that market. There's always an opportunity to launch a product or attack an incumbent where you find zones of discontent. And zones of discontent have two characteristics. There's an elite offering something the market does not want. We've seen a very classic example of this recently with Jay-Z, Champagne, and hip-hop. Cristal, the celebrated French Champagne, which built its prestige in the fact that it created specialized Champagne bottles and special categories of Champagne for the Tsar of Russia, once made a comment that alluded to the fact that they don't want their Champagne associated with hip-hop. Jay-Z responded by calling for a ban on Cristal to be used in the hip-hop community. He then went further and said, I'm going to launch my own hip-hop influenced champagne. Well, not influenced by hip-hop, but obviously funded by his hip-hop career. And of course, it's come full circle now that LVMH, the celebrated French luxury brands company, has now decided to partner with him to grow his hip-hop inspired champagne brand. That's a classic example of a zone of discontent where you have a group of elites telling the consumers what's good for them and what's not good for them. You need to think about strategy in this way. If you want to find market opportunities, you find zones of discontent. You find places where a group of celebrated elite people think they know everything and are telling the rest of the world what to do. It's almost certain the rest of the world does not want to do what they want them to do. It's pretty soon for Slides members, you're going to see us put out the Competitive Strategy Study. It's a, it's a landmark study. It's one of the best studies we've ever done. And you're going to see how we find these zones of discontent. 
The next big theme is the wrong lessons from GE Capital. As you probably know, GE Capital, as rightly or wrongly, that's not for us to decide. It's for the investor community and the share price community to decide. Well, they've basically decided that they're going to exit the entire capital business. They're going to leave the financing leasing business. G Capital has, for whatever reason, become an example of finance run amok. And G Capital wants to slim down and basically put itself out of existence. Ultimately, they want to exit financing and leasing. My question is, why should GE not have been in the financing business? What, who says, and what are the rules that says an industrial company cannot be successful at providing financing? If GE financing should not exist or GE capital should not exist, why can Toyota be in the financing business? What gives Toyota certain unique skills and capabilities that allows them to be in the financing business? So clearly an industrial conglomerate can be in the financing business. Are we saying an industrial company cannot manage a finance business? Or are we saying GE cannot manage a finance business? Or rather, and here's the big insight, are we saying that GE's current management cannot manage a finance business? If that's the case, then GE should change its management team. It shouldn't exit the finance business. Banks have commercial, investment, wealth management, leasing, mortgage businesses all under one roof. And of course, they've got many other types of financing businesses that have no synergy, no shared competencies of excellence, no shared centers of excellence, no synergies, none whatsoever. But we have no problem allowing banks to control unrelated financing businesses. But they do it and everyone seems happy with it. A company like GE does nothing because it has no skill. A company like GE hires people to do things for it. So it's not fair to say GE failed. It's fair to say GE's management failed. And the wrong lessons being taken out of this is that companies cannot be in finance. Companies can be in finance and companies should be in finance if they have the right culture, right processes and right management teams that understand how to manage it. Walmart is looking to become a bank again. They could very well do a good job, but it's unfair to Walmart. In fact, it's unfair to GE to say that industrial companies non-financial services finance companies should not be in finance what we should be looking at is the management teams and management structures in place and look at what is needed to run a proper and effective financial services unit irrespective of the company that runs it but certainly we should not be saying ge should not be in finance the next big topic and is probably one of the most exciting ones is the fact that ford has announced that they're going to be reviewing their Indian business and they may exit India. Now, this is a big deal. They exited Brazil about two years ago and they're exiting a market which is predicted to be the third biggest in the world within five to 10 years. India is expected to overtake Japan within five to 10 years to become the fifth, sorry, to become the third largest automotive market in the world by volume. Now we've got to think about this, right? Obviously Ford is run by very successful, qualified, intelligent people. And they're advised by very successful management consulting partners, many of whom I know. Some of them were peers with me. Why would Ford exit a market that is clearly going to be one of the most important markets in the world? Now, Ford says the market is not profitable, but a better way of saying it is that Ford did not find a way to make it profitable. 
When a company says a market's not profitable, it doesn't mean you can't make any money in that market. It means that their business model, their cost structure, their product decisions, their financing decisions, their pricing decisions, their distribution decisions, all led to an outcome where they couldn't make money, but the market is still profitable. Okay, that's, that's fairly obvious. But why doesn't Ford try again? So if anyone in Ford is listening to this podcast, and if anyone from General Motors and so on is listening to this podcast, the question becomes, why don't they just try again? And here's the insight. Because Ford doesn't do anything. Ford is a company. It is a piece of paper that's held as an incorporation. It has a license to do certain things. If Ford doesn't do anything, a group of executives and a team within Ford is responsible for finding a way to make the Indian market work again. The question now becomes, why doesn't this executive team that has been tasked with making the Indian market successful reboot themselves and try harder? Because it comes down to a very simple human attribute. They need to be willing and able to do it. And many times when you've tried something for so long, you just burned out from it. So the situation now becomes this. Think about it. Ford is a major company with limited resources like any company. They've got a R&D division. They've got marketing divisions. They've got many different things happening all over the world. The person who runs India has to first come up with a plan for India. He or she then has to convince the board of Ford to support the plan. The board says yes, they have to then convince the different warring factions. Now, there's not an insult to Ford. Every company has warring factions. They, don't, they just don't get along. The person running India has to convince someone in R&D to put effort behind what's happening in India. Ford only launched one major vehicle in the last few years. Now they have to launch multiple vehicles. They've got to convince the best marketing minds to put their time into Ford India. They've got to convince some of their best distribution minds to put their time into Ford India. They've got to bring some of the top people from around the world. That takes a lot of effort. The ability to marshal warring factions to put together a strategy and resources. When Ford says it's pulling out of India, what Ford is saying is that it has not found the executive who can do this. There's no one that it believes can coordinate the capital in such a way that the capital that is deployed into India generates a worthwhile return. Ford has not failed in India. Ford has failed to find someone that first is willing to take on this task. And if someone is willing to take on the task, Ford has failed to find someone that they believe can take on this task. And to me, it must be an existential problem. Because if you're pulling out of a market that you know in five to 10 years, you wanna be back in this market, you basically are saying that, look, we know it's an important market, but if we don't get out of this market now and save this capital, we're not gonna be in business five to 10 years to fight to get back into this market. But Ford has not failed in India. Ford has not found the right executive who can do what it takes to make the Indian market succeed. And they're gonna keep looking, they're gonna keep looking for this person. One day someone is gonna come along who's gonna convince the board and the CEO of Ford that they have what it takes to marshal the resources of Ford to win in the Indian market. When that day comes, Ford will announce that they're going back into India. Over my career, I've worked with many Japanese executives, many, uh, from electronics companies to consumer products companies to chemical companies. And over a long career as a senior partner, I spoke to them when China was just waking up and rising. The number one regret of Japanese companies that did not make the investment early in, in China is that they regret it. Because when China was just opening up, it encouraged Japanese and Taiwanese companies who had the capital and had proximity 
to invest. But the Chinese were very careful to say, if you invest, we want you to do joint ventures and transfer skills and knowledge and so on. And of course, it was a gamble. No one knew how big China would be. There were several Japanese companies and Western companies who said, look, we're not going to transfer all our know-how and skills because we just don't know whether it's worth it. And then China obviously blew up. And there are Japanese companies today who regret that decision because they never got in on the ground floor. They never built goodwill with customers. They never built brand recognition. They never found the right alliance partners. And now if they have to get in, it's a hard job for them to get in. So if Ford is saying we're withdrawing from India, which by all measures is going to be one of the biggest markets in the world within the next 5, 10, 20 years, there must be a very good reason they are not willing to take the pain now that's going to be far less than the pain they're going to be forced to take in 10 to 15 years. The final big insight in speaking to many executive coaching clients, I know what's going to happen. If Ford does this, Woodrow's. If GM does this, Woodrow's. If Fiat does this, Woodrow's. If Chrysler does this, Woodrow's. Pretty soon, there's going to be a bunch of consultants going around saying, look, it's best practice that when you are stuck for capital, you need to invest in things like AI, electric vehicles, and so on. Best practice shows us that the leading companies of the world would draw from promising markets. This is how best practice becomes best practice. It's not that it was best. It's because if enough major companies do it, it becomes part of accepted conversation. It's important to understand that to win in a market, you've got to adjust products, experiment, adjust pricing, adjust services, constant iteration. You can't just launch one product in a major market and hope people pay more for it because you're a Western brand. You need to be full commitment. And the danger here is that because we don't know the impact of what will happen to Ford, but the impact is pretty much going to be harsh if you pull out of one of the fastest growing markets in the world that has the greatest promise for the future. No matter how many companies do it, it's going to be painful. And I would hope the insight other executives get from this is not to replicate what Ford and GM is doing, but to figure out how to prevent the pain that the Japanese manufacturers are going through and to find a way and find the right people to reboot yourself in a key market. If a market is large, if a market is growing and it's going to be the future, you do what it takes to stay in that market. The other big story is the listing of Coupang, which is a South Korean e-commerce darling on the market. One of the biggest IPOs ever. Everyone's calling it the next Amazon. Is it the next Amazon? I don't know. But I would like to give a shout out to all the Silicon Valley VCs and executives who spent an inordinate amount of their time figuring out creative ways to subsidize my life. Whenever I want to buy anything, whether it's a house, whether it's a car, whether it's a food service, I always look for Silicon Valley companies. Because VC-backed companies are willing to subsidize losses, which is lower prices to customers to hook us for the long term. There are companies today which will give you back 50% of the cost of buying a house, the brokerage fees to the real estate broker, if you work with them. There are Silicon Valley food companies which will subsidize shipping and 50% of the meal just to sign you up. And they'll do that in every single category, whether it's Healthcare, whether it's doctor's visits, whether it's buying a car, whether it's buying a house. The difference between the South Korean company and Amazon is that they are funded from VC capital. They are not funded from retained earnings. What this means is that if funding disappears for the South Korean company and many similar companies, they go out of business. 
They're only in business because of their ability to continue raising funding in the market. So the question becomes, if they're unprofitable with their current business model, are they unprofitable, one, because they don't have the right economies of scale? What that means is that as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, without changing their business model, they can spread their costs further and they become profitable. Or two, they're unprofitable because their business model is incorrect. So no matter how big they become, they simply replicate an incorrect and unsustainable business model. But of course, when you list on one of the most illustrious stock exchanges of the world and everyone from the Financial Times to the Wall Street Journal to The Economist is talking about you and saying that South Korea has now made it into the e-commerce world for delivering food and what else they deliver, you attract competition. And what competitors do is they lower prices and they eat into your margin. So if this company is struggling to make money today, they're not going to be making money in one year because they're probably going to get a lot of heavily funded competitors, whether it's Amazon, whether it's someone from Japan, whether it's someone else. They've got attention and VC money follows attention. The question becomes, why did they list? Did they list? Because they're celebrating the fact that they now have a sustainable business model or are they celebrating the fact that they have now raised money to fund an unprofitable business model until they figure out how to make it profitable? Or do they list because some of the investors believe they're never going to be profitable and they want to cash out as quickly as possible? We don't know. But the question is why? And when you look at these stories, you've got to ask yourselves, what was the motivation for doing it? And companies never really tell you the motivation. I'm going to end off Monday morning, 8 a.m. by talking about a very successful executive coaching client and some of the challenges they face, which are pretty usual for executive coaching clients. Now, we use the term whales to refer to executive coaching clients. We call them a whale. It's not a derogative term, by the way. It's a great compliment if you've ever read Moby Dick. If you've ever watched a whale, the creature in the ocean, which looks like the size of 10 buses stuck together, there's something quite majestic about them. They're never rushing, but they get attention. They get the job. And when a whale surfaces, it displaces everything. You know a whale has arrived in the arbor because everyone's photographing it. It makes things happen. We call our executive coaching clients whales because they are people, when they arrive, they have first the fortitude, they have the training we provide, and they have the willpower and determination to move markets. Many of our clients, when they started off and they went into a role or a division, those divisions and those roles were floundering. They were basically listing. They were going to be shut down. But these whales found a way to displace everything and create a new and better way of doing things. So I want to talk about an executive coaching client, a whale, 38 years old, EVP for products at a major tech company. And when I started working with this client, uh, they were swamped and drowning, just unable to cope with incredible growth in this tech company, great demands to put out products, but also multiple iterations of products. And the discussion I had with this client was, okay, so you're struggling to lead. And I said, how do you know you're struggling to lead? And he said, well, I just can't get anything out. We just, it's like someone took molasses, mixed it with you know sawdust and put it into the gasoline tank in my car. Nothing's working. Everything's seized up. So I said, okay, look, leadership is about getting your team to do things. So let's just talk about this, right? Talk me through how many times in a day, not in a day, in a week, you interact with your team. And interactions count as things like um, emails and so on, right? Now, the thing you got to remember is each time you interact with your team is a chance to mess up. 
Think about that for a second. Each time you interact with your team is a chance. Maybe you don't inspire them enough. Maybe you tell them the wrong thing. Now, a lot of leaders, they want to interact more and more and more with their teams. But more is not better. You should be interacting fewer times, but doing it well. Fewer interactions is better and you can control it. Fewer means more thought and care goes into the interactions. A lot of leaders, when they don't know how to manage their teams, what they do is they have meetings, nothing happens, and then they get caught into this damaging, repeating pattern of calling a lot of ad hoc meetings, emailing people all of the time to say, hey, we had this meeting, nothing's happening. Tell me what's happening. How can I help you? You start calling. When you call people all the time, you basically interrupt them. If you're calling someone who's busy working on something, you break their work routine. So it's very hard for them to, be, to get back into the flow. The other thing you do is you basically terrorize them because they're scared. Why is my boss calling me? So what I ask them to do is this. I want you to map out all interactions you have with your team in a week. And what we discovered is that he's having a lot of meetings with his team, but also a lot of follow-ups. So a lot of meetings, but then a lot of follow-up. And I'm asking him, you know, why do you have so much follow-ups? Why is there so much emails you have to send your team at 2 o'clock in the night? He said, well, Michael... I have these meetings and nothing happens. Nothing's working well, so I have to follow up. Now, you've got to think about this. He's got pressure from his bosses. These guys don't mess around, right? They're up against other major tech companies, not just from the United States, from China, from India, from all over the world. The Japanese are making encroachments on American territory. He has little time to think and little time to plan. He's under pressure to do things, but to do the right things, he needs to think and plan. But he's spending all his time trying to do things and nothing happens. He has a meeting on Monday, no follow through. He's got to contact his team on a Tuesday, have ad hoc meetings with them on a Wednesday, sometimes have lunch meetings with them. Manages five product teams. He's managing five product teams. That's not a, that's not a small role. That's a pretty big role. And they're not small product launches. I'm aware of what he's doing. These are important, crucial launches for the company. What I've asked him to do is this. We've got to reconfigure what he's doing. It's not working. I want him to change the way he thinks about leadership. Leadership is about how you get results. You're not getting results, you're therefore not a leader. It doesn't matter how many people like you. It doesn't matter if people say you're the greatest person in the world. If you fail, their bonuses go into the gutter, their salaries tank, and worse comes to worse, they have to be let go or recycled into another part of the business. They're never going to call you a great leader. So you may think you're a good leader now because you have all the touchy-feely good things like charisma and inspiration, but you need results. People are not giving you negative feedback now because it's too early in your tenure, but soon they're going to measure you on results. You've got to think about how you manage your meetings and manage the meeting so well that the only follow-up from a meeting is the meeting in, in the next week. So you've got five teams. You have one meeting on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday with each team. Maybe it's one hour, two hours, up to you. But you've got to manage those meetings so well that you don't need to follow up. That's the key thing. So the rest of your time, you work on big picture stuff. You need to think about how to collect expectations in a meeting, how to physically track feedback, how to solve problems that arise in a meeting how to track concerns, how to follow up with concerns, how to set deadlines, how to manage people, and how to solve problems. Now, if you followed firms consulting for a long time as a private equity firm and that's built from a strategy consulting capability, you know that we've done many studies. You've seen the studies on our website from turning around ports to setting up competitive strategy programs to building strategies for power plants, for market entry, for banking, for gold mining companies, for luxury brands companies, numerous things we've done. Across everything we've done, we use a common 
set of tools to manage the meetings in all of those interactions so that the teams know what to do. We have six tools. We use expectations exchange and ground rules when we have meetings. We start off with an expectations exchange and we set ground rules. At the end of every meeting, we collect benefits and concerns. At major milestones and major workshops, we have check-ins and check-outs. If a problem arises in a meeting that needs to be solved, we use a leadership problem-solving system. We use RACIs, Responsible, Accountable, Consult, Inform, to know who is responsible for each part of a task. And finally, we use the Myers-Briggs process to understand the personality type of each member of the team so I know who talks too much and gives them less oxygen to talk and those who talk too little and make sure that I pull them in and get their viewpoint because just because they talk little doesn't mean they don't have something important to say. So what I taught this client is to be a leader, you've got to understand how you interact with your team. Not how, primarily about how many number of times. You've got to reduce the number of times you do it and make it count. You've got to have meetings where you deploy these six tools. And then your definition of leadership changes from how to make people feel good by making them feel good to making people feel good by getting results. You have better meetings and you pass the work to the team. They do better and they say you'll be a better leader. It's a circular effect. I asked this client, this whale, to put this into a three-month cycle and the results were exceptional. Delivered everything that year, promoted, now runs eight product teams below them, which if you work in the tech space, you know that's a very big mandate. This technique which we have, which is available only to executive coaching clients, is what we call the Leadership Journal or the Leadership Handbook. What it does is it distills all our learnings from all the studies we've done, and you know there's many studies, and we ask ourselves, what were the few things we did would allow these teams to deliver so well? Let's cut out the theory. No one has time to read hours and hours of theory on the history of team management. Our executive coaching clients are whales. When they arrive, they displace bad results and they get results. So what can we teach them to make the biggest impact? And what we found is the way they manage meetings. Leaders manage meetings in a very, very disciplined way. And that's the way we've always used and that's the way we've passed our team. So what's the big insight? If you want to be a great leader, you've got to move away from thinking, I just need to inspire people and make them feel good. You will only make people feel good in the long term in a sustained way, in a way they feel they're part of some collective and great story, is you manage meetings in such a way that not it's not that you tell them what to do, you empower them to arrive at the answer by themselves. When people feel that they've, they've done something that contributed to the greater good, they feel amazing. Nobody wants to work for someone whereby they feel that they're getting paid and they're not growing. Growth is when you solve a problem by yourself. Growth is when a leader that you're part of, his team or her team, sets up feedback meetings and meetings whereby you go into that meeting and you don't feel that you're just riding along the coattails of successful team members. You feel that... The way the meeting has been set up is that you've been empowered to step in and make a difference. For those of you out there who want to be leaders, always remember this. Nobody wants a free lunch. Nobody wants to be paid to do nothing. If you are a leader who's telling your teams what to do, you are alienating them. And you're alienating your future career because you don't have time to do that and you shouldn't do it. The six tools we teach. Show you how to manage things so that you free up your time. But most importantly, 
You give your teams the space so that they deliver and they feel good about themselves. And that's leadership. Leadership is not about taking teams where they want to go. It's about taking teams to places they never thought was possible. And doing it in a way that you empower them to feel that, you know what, I grew, I contributed to this. I can see my personal contribution to this. I, it's not that I was just part of a successful team. I was part of the DNA of a successful team. As always, I look forward to seeing you next week, Monday morning at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.